It is good to celebrate the amazing love of the Lord Jesus Christ and how that has been displayed and given to us. I too want to extend my welcome. I'm glad that you're here this morning. Um, for those of you who have not been coming, we've been studying Romans chapter 12, and it's been great. I'm waiting on an amen. All right. It's been great because we've, we've delved into what it means and what it looks like to walk by grace through faith into obedience, having received the mercies of God. But have you ever made a mistake? I will tell you that, that, that I've made a ton of mistakes. Now, some of them are not big mistakes and some of them have far reaching complications. The title of this message, I think, in the outline is, uh, is the big mistake we can make. A horrible mistake when we have a wrong perspective of what Scripture says. Now, some mistakes are big. Some mistakes are not as big. Some are just awkward. Last week, you will recall that we had a plumbing issue at church. Do anybody remember that? <clears throat> I sent out a letter to the membership and said, you know, very restricted use of the facilities. And just in case, we're going to put porta johns in the parking lot. That was not a mistake. Putting the porta johns right outside that window facing this door, that was a mistake. <laughs> so you, <laughs> I don't know what to tell you. It seemed like a good idea at the time. But I will tell you that you've got to be cautious. And so there's something that I want us to review and reflect on so that we don't make a mistake that could cost not only life, but could cost eternity. As we've gone through Romans chapter 12, he begins by saying, I appeal to you, brother, brothers, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God. And then we have some very clear instructions, and I just want to recap those for you. It's always good after going through a series to make sure that that we rehearse those things. Present your body. What have we learned? Present your body as a living sacrifice. We're to be sacrificial. Don't follow what society tells you to do, but rather live to please God. Be moral. Don't be arrogant. We should pursue humility. Get along with others. We should be cooperative. Serve along with others. We should get involved. And then the marks of a true Christian. A Christian's life is characterized by love without hypocrisy, genuine love. By hating and abhorring that which is evil and clinging to that which is good. By, by being respectful and honoring one another. By being fervent and not being lazy. By being steadfast and not giving up. By praying always. And by being generous with our attitudes, our hearts, and our lives. And then when we face persecution and opposition, we're to bless those who seek to do us harm and ask God's blessing upon them. We're to rejoice with those who suffer for the sake of Jesus. We're to share their sorrow. We're to remember that we are a family and take one another's concerns personally. We're not to take our own revenge, but we're to do what is honorable, regardless of the circumstances of our life. We're to, as far as it lies within us, live peaceably with all men. We're to do good to our enemies, and we're to make sure to guard our hearts so that we are not overcome by evil, but we overcome evil with good. Isn't that great? Now, I don't know about you, but as I've gone through this passage, God's gives me, given me many opportunities to put these things into practice in my life. And I pray that he has yours. 
But the tendency is to say, this sounds great, it's going to be hard, but if I work on it really hard, if I really strive for it, I think I can do these things. But these things, if not placed in the context of the first phrase of this chapter, by the mercies of God, can lead to a big mistake. We ask or we think, if, if I do these things, does that mean I'm a Christian? If I do these things, does that make me a Christian? Doesn't even wanting to do these things mean I'm a Christian? After all, it seems like most people don't. But that's not what it means to be a Christian. While it is impossible in one message to encapsulate Romans chapters 1, 1 through 11, I do want to make sure that we look back to make sure that we aren't making the big mistake. Now, what is the big mistake? It's in thinking that wanting to do these things, or striving to do these things, or doing our best to do these, these things, equals salvation or equals a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's make sure that we're not involved of the mistake of misunderstanding the gospel. Now, the gospel is, we've sung about the gospel all morning, exalting Christ. Scott read the account of Christ's crucifixion, and we talk about the Lord Jesus Christ a lot. So why would we need to do this again as a church? And I will tell you that every pastor I know that loves the Lord and loves his people has a concern. I, I, I don't know if you can couch it as a pastor's biggest fear, but you can certainly count it as a legitimate burden of a pastor for his people to beware the danger that we find in Matthew chapter 7 in the Sermon on the Mount. Many of you will be familiar with it. It's a passage that we've looked at before. It's certainly one that we'll look at again. And Jesus is preaching and he's teaching and he's talking about those who have placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But then he refers to good people. Then he refers to church people, moral people, people who work and serve. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, he says, Not everyone who calls me Lord or says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? But then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I never knew you. This is a personal story for me. By the way, if you read the story, the testimony of, of great Christians in the past, like John Wesley, like uh, Whitefield, and you will see that they had an initial experience where there was some decision or some commitment to follow Christ, but then God invaded them later in their life, and they recognized that even though they had made a decision, they had not been born again, and they had not entered into a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Personal for me, when I was a senior at Furman University, I got a call from Dad, and he said, you need to come home. Something's happened to your mom. And, of course, that's about all Dad said and hung up the phone. <laughs> Did not find that very helpful. But what had happened was, I found out as I went home to find out, was that they had had a service in their church, and a preacher named Percy Ray had come, and he was preaching a revival, a series of meetings in the church. And they had been praying, and they had been seeing God move and work in the congregation 
And when I said, Dad, what's happened to Mom? He says, let your mom tell you. Mom told me her testimony. Now, this comes to my mind freshly because recently, Mom was asked to give her testimony at Bishop Branch Baptist Church for an assembly of people there. And we were sitting there, and we were rehearsing that. She was sharing it with me again. How that she was raised in the low country of South Carolina. Her father was a farmer. Good country stock. Raised on the farm and good Presbyterians. Good Christians. Went to church regularly. Went to church faithfully. Father was a good and godly man. Mother was a good and godly woman. And being raised in church... She felt that she had come to a place where she had determined to follow after God, but she did the best she could through her teen years. Then she met my dad. Now, my dad was not a believer when mom met him. She came to Columbia. They met dad, had a relationship, decided to get married, got married, started having kids. And then one day, dad is back home visiting his mom in Kannapolis, North Carolina, and at Lane Street Baptist Church. The Lord just really impressed upon his heart that he was lost and that he needed to be saved. And he came down front and he, he prayed with the pastor and he prayed and he talked to God, poured out his heart to God, and God saved him and called him to preach. When God called him to preach, my mom's a good woman. She said, I'll go with him. I'll go with you wherever you go. I'm your, uh, you're my husband. I'm your wife. And so they moved to North Greenville with three kids under three years old. Exciting times. Had a fourth kid while they were there. And she lived the life of a good pastor's wife. She would read the Bible and study the scriptures. Went to church. Of course, we went to church every time the door was open. We were there all the time. And involved in every aspect of ministry in the church. And I will tell you that she was a great mom to us. And she was a great wife. But she came to the realization that she always had this question about whether she had really come to the point of complete surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ. Still felt the sense that there was something missing. Still felt the sense that there was something wrong. And in that revival meeting, the Lord convicted her that she had not come to the place of yieldedness, total yieldedness. She was being good, and she was being faithful, and she was serving, but she was not His. And in brokenness, she surrendered herself to the Lord Jesus Christ. After I was in college, after I was, after the kids were grown, after having been, I don't know how many years, 20, 30 years as a pastor's wife, she came to know the Lord Jesus Christ as her Savior. You see, the issue when we talk about the gospel is not simply that we make a decision to follow Christ. It's the issue of regeneration. How's that for a great word? It's a good biblical word. It means to be born again, to be made into something new, something that we've never been before. It is an act of God, unless we ever forget, salvation always belongs to the Lord. Only God can save. Only God can save. Thank the Lord. And that is why the cross is central. This salvation is provided through the cross. This salvation is centered on the cross. This salvation is built upon the Lord Jesus Christ and His atoning death on the cross of Christ. As we sang about this morning, we see and we read of Jesus carrying His cross out of Jerusalem, the Via Dolorosa, going through the gates and up to Golgotha. We see Him laying on the cross, spreading out His arms so that the Roman soldiers could drive spikes through His hands. 
drives spikes through his feet. We see him raised on the cross between heaven and earth. We see him suffering pain, physical agony. We see more than that. We see the wrath of God being poured out upon him. But we who are familiar with this story too often think this is a great love story. God sent Christ to be an example to us of sacrifice. He sent Jesus as an ultimate display of God's love. And that should inspire us to be sacrificial people and to be better people. But if we stop there, if that's all we see in the cross, we've missed it. We've missed the importance of the cross. We've missed the purpose of the cross. We've reduced the cross to some sort of inspirational story to help us on our way, to help us be better people, to encourage us to be good, to somehow find some favor with God. And we think this because the first mistake too often made is we don't think we're as bad as we are. We don't recognize our need of a Savior. We don't recognize that we have earned condemnation. After all... When I look around, I think I'm as good as the folks I know. And some of us are sitting here on the pews, look down the pews, say, I'm way better than that person down there. I'm way better than that person. I think we're okay. And compared to people who aren't even in the church, well, hey, there's no comparison. But we need to understand the condition of every person. We need to get some taste, some sense of uh, that the Holy Spirit opens our eyes and we recognize just how bad off we are. By the way, the way that happens is by the Holy Spirit. You'll remember when Jesus was preparing his disciples for his departure. It's recorded in John 16. He says, Jesus is telling them, I'm going to the one who sent me. And uh, none of you ask me, where are you going? Because I've said these things to you. You're sorrowful right now. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. This is Jesus to his disciples. It is for your benefit. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I don't go away, the helper, the paraclete, the one who comes beside, the Holy Spirit will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And here's what he does when he comes. When he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. What does that mean? He convicts concerning sin which is unbelief. They do not believe in me. He convicts concerning righteousness. What is righteousness? Jesus has been the visible example of righteousness. But now he will convict because Jesus is going to the Father and you will see me no longer. He convicts of judgment. What judgment? Because the ruler of this world, sin and all sin, is judged. So what is the sin here? It's the sin of unbelief, of not believing in Jesus. And, and you say, well, oh, I, I know that. I believe in Jesus. I believe that all of sin and comes short of the glory of God. We're all in the same boat. I believe there's none righteous, no, not one. It's not hard to convince people that they sin. What we've missed or what we've not considered or grasped or understood is the personal experience of standing before a holy God who is perfect in every way, who created us, who formed us, and come to the stark realization that I'm lost, I'm guilty, I am an unbeliever, I am weak, unable to do right, unable to be righteous or even think right, I'm broken, I need to be healed, I am destitute and without hope in this world and the next. And that is the Holy Spirit's job. To bring conviction and illumination of really bad news to the heart 
of every person. A lot of times in church we think that conviction is just a guilty conscience or shame over sin. But I got to tell you, everyone experiences guilt at some point and shamefulness over sin at some point. And it's not Holy Spirit conviction. It's not Holy Spirit conviction that leads to repentance. You've got, you guys have been watching the murder trial? And you're familiar with experiences in your own life. Yes, I know. Yes, I know. Yes, I guilt. And there's this sense of shame. But it doesn't come to the extent of Holy Spirit conviction in a person's heart. Conviction is not just worry about the coming judgment. This kind of unease about what's really going to happen when I die. We know that the Bible says it is appointed unto man once to die and after death the judgment. We are aware of that. And there's this kind of anxiety, and we, we think that might be conviction, but it's, it's more than that. It's more than just knowing the difference between what is right and wrong. There are a lot of people who fully understand and are aware that the wages of sin is death. There are a lot of people who know that no immoral or impure or greedy person has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. And they may even agree that the wicked shall be turned into hell and all the nations that forget God, Psalm 9 says. And yet knowing it, they continue to live in sin, continue to love sin, continue to embrace sin, understanding consequences but far from being convicted of sin. What is conviction? Conviction is when the Holy Spirit opens our eyes and helps us to see ourselves not as we want to see ourselves. Helps us to see ourselves as we are seen as God sees us through the, through the lens of Scripture that there is nothing lovely in us. We need to begin to feel the loathsomeness of sin. It happens when we've seen God's beauty and His purity, His holiness, when we recognize that sin cannot dwell with Him. It, it, we need what we need. I'm going to just go talk for a minute. We need to know the experience of Adam and Eve in the garden. You remember the story? God created Adam. He created Eve. He gave them the garden and said, you can have the whole place. A lot of good food there. One place you can't eat, and that's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Adam and Eve, Genesis chapter 2, Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve disobeyed God. And when God came walking through the garden and calling their name, you think God didn't know where they, was, where they were? He knew. And yet when they heard God walking in the garden, what did they do? They hid. Why did they hide? Because they knew that they were naked. They knew that there was something wrong. They knew that they had sinned. There was this awareness, and they tried to get away from God. He had told them, the day you sin, you will surely die. And yet in His grace, He did not give them physical death at that moment. But there was a spiritual death, a separation from God that is passed on to all men. As by one man sin entered into the world, so death has passed on to all, for all have sinned. It's important that we understand the significance of that. That there's nothing good in ourselves. We tend to feel good about ourselves rather than like Isaiah. When in his vision he saw the Lord, how did he respond? He fell on his face before God. We need to have the sense that Peter had when Jesus did the simple miracle of helping him catch fish. <laughs> and Jesus, Peter saw the miracle, and he fell on his face in the boat and said, Depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. 
We experience Holy, conviction, Holy Spirit conviction when we become intensely aware that sin requires punishment. And we are experiencing and will ultimately experience the wrath of a holy God. Remember when the Philippian jailer fell at the apostles' feet? He cried and says, Sir, what must I do to be saved? He was under conviction. He was certain that without a Savior, he would die. Peter preached the cross. He preached Christ crucified. This, and he, he calls them out. He calls them on their sin. This Christ whom you crucified, God has made him Lord and Christ. And their response when they heard it, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sin. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now when he preached Christ and the Holy Spirit convicted of sin, their response was, We've got to do something. What is the answer? What do we do? And yet many times we've heard the gospel proclaimed. And our thought after the service was, where are we going to get lunch? Our thought after the service was, that's a sweet story. And we might feel a little discomfort, but there's no prompting, no burning, no pulling in our heart. There's not this deep awareness. They became aware, personally aware, cut to the heart, that they were sinners, worthy and destined for judgment. And their response was, what shall we do? And so the question that I have for you, the first mistake is we don't think we're as bad as we are. The question I have for you is, have you ever come to the place where you stood before a holy God and acknowledged your guilt? You have transgressed the law of God. And your sins have come between you and your God. And God is a just God. I remember I preached this message or I shared this truth in this congregation almost 20 years ago. And there was a man in the church who I love. He was a great guy. He was a church guy and he had been a part of this congregation for a long time. And he came up to me after the service and he just kind of crossed his arms and said, Oh, I see you're one of those. And I'm like, I don't know what that means. I'm one of what? He said, you're one of those that thinks that the cross was because mankind can't help themselves. And we believe that the cross shows us how we can be right with God. And I said, well, no. Let's, let, let's back up on this. I do not believe that the Christ cross shows us how we can be right with God. I do not. I believe that the cross is the only way we can be right with God. The whole point is that there's nothing good in man that commends himself to God. Do you understand that? Be as good as you can be. How good can you be? Be as good as you If you could be good enough to gain the approval and approbation and acceptance of a holy God, there was no need for Christ to go to the cross at all. One of the things that the cross does is it shows us our weakness 
in our need, the absolute necessity of the cross that we might know God. Big deal, big deal. The first mistake is that we don't think we're as bad as we are, but the second mistake is when we realize, hey, we're not perfect, we don't think God's really just. As a matter of fact, hey, doesn't the Bible say that love covers a multitude of sins? Doesn't the Bible say that His mercies are new every morning? Doesn't the Bible say that He's gracious and He pours His grace out on the good and the bad? Well, we haven't. The mistake is that we don't see God as He reveals Himself, as He reveals Himself in Scripture. God is just. You guys remember two weeks ago when we were talking about the justice of God? We went to Exodus chapter 23. We talked about how He established the ruling of justice and the parameters for justice and righteous judges on the earth among the nation of Israel. And He said that we don't take vengeance for ourselves, but there is always justice exercised against sin. God punishes the wicked. We know the verses. The soul that sinneth, he shall surely die. And a just judge acts justly. Boy, that sounds like a circular sentence, doesn't it? Let me see if I can illustrate it. Not too many years ago, Chrissy, my daughter, was driving down Haywood Road. What is Haywood after you cross Pelham? What's the name of it? That. Okay. How? She's driving down the road, and there is a pickup truck driving carelessly and recklessly, and he rear-ends her. Now, the way that he hits her is he swerves off to the side, and he hits her driver's side rear bumper. Now, this was, she was driving a 1995 Camry. It had about 4,000 miles on it, and it was good for another four, 400,000 miles on it. 400,000 miles on it, and I guarantee you we could have got another two or 300 out of it, all right? We were hoping that car would last for a long time. And that guy hit her and ruined the back corner of that car, and he didn't stop. He kept going. But he didn't get very far because the way that he hit her turned in his bumper in his truck, and just a little ways down the road, his tire went flat, and he got pulled off the road. Someone who saw the wreck chased him down, found him. When the police came, they took the police to him, and that guy got a ticket. And we went to court. Now, we went to the magistrate's court down here on North Main Street, and I went in wanting justice. I didn't know exactly what justice looked like, but I was expecting it. <laughs> And we went through this series of cases and cases, and it was all very perfunctory. And then this guy's case came up. The highway patrol person told what had happened. This guy said, yes, I was guilty. I hit her, and the judge gave him some sort of small fine and said, don't do it anymore and let him go. And I got to tell you, I don't know what was supposed to happen, but I got no sense that that was justice exercise. And I was angry. Have you ever seen a judge who did not dispense justice? How did you respond? What if a judge says, well, I'm a kind guy and I'm a loving guy and I'm just going to overlook whatever is going on. For a judge to be a good judge, he must execute justice. As a matter of fact, Proverbs chapter 70, 17 says that, uh, um, read the verse, he who justifies the wicked, 
justifies the wicked, lets them off. And he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord, a stench before the Lord. Here's the deal. We don't believe God is just. We believe love covers a multitude of sin. We just do the best we can. God's going to be okay with us. If he grades on a curve, we may be a B minus or a C plus, but at least we're not an F. We see Fs in the class. That's not us. But the truth is God is just, and if you are not his, if he has not made you new, if he has not given you life, if he has not forgiven your sins, you are facing the wrath of God now, Romans chapter 1, as you're being turned over, and in the future, as you are storing up wrath for yourself, Romans chapter 2. And the clearest picture, the only picture necessary to see God's judgment is the cross of Christ. We undervalue the cross, folks. We undervalue the cross. Jesus, God in human flesh, fully God and fully man, willingly goes to the cross. And there God pours out His wrath upon Him. Jesus, on the cross, experiences more than physical torment. Now, listen, did it hurt to have nails driven in His hands? You can imagine that it did. Did it hurt to have nails in His feet? Of course it did. Did it hurt to have his body beaten and flayed and crowns of thorns pressed upon his hands? Of course it did. Of course it did. But so much more happened on the cross. God's penalty for sin, the day you eat of it, you will surely die. God's penalty for sin was poured out upon his son on the cross. God turns his back on his son, on himself. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was more than physical suffering. There was a thief on his right and a thief on his left. Both of them were suffering the same physical pain that Jesus suffered. Neither one of them was atonement. Why? Because they weren't worthy, but also because the Lamb of God, Christ, received the punishment for sin. And that is a stumbling block for some. How could one man's death cover the sins of all people for all time? And it's because of the worth of that one man. It's because of who Jesus is and what he accomplished. God made him who knew no sin to become the righteousness of God or to become sin that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Listen, just listen. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken. He was smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him the punishment was laid that brings us peace. With his wounds we are healed. Why do we need it? Because all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. As you continue to read Isaiah 53, you see it was the will of the Lord to crush him. To pay the penalty for our sin. And I pray that God will open your eyes to see the justice of God against your sin poured out on Christ on the cross. You're familiar with the old song, Man of Sorrows, what a name. For the Son of God who came. Ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah. What a Savior. We need to grasp the death of what Christ accomplished on the cross. 
It is the only way that God can be both just and justifier of the wicked. It is the only way. God's atoning death. I want to read a passage earlier on. We already talked about wrath in Romans chapter 1, wrath in Romans chapter 2. Let's get to Romans chapter 3. In Romans 3, we see the righteousness of God has been shown apart from the law, which means our good works cannot bring about righteousness and good intentions won't do it. Now, the law and the prophets, they bear witness to it. But the righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction between Jew or Greek. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And all are justified by His grace as a gift through one means. Through the redemption, the purchase that is in Christ Jesus. And then we come to the verse 25, which is on which all of this rests. Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, as a substitute, as one who is able to satisfy the wrath of God through his bloodshed. And how do we experience it? We receive it by faith. This shows God's righteousness because in divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. All the sins of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and everyone who had come before were covered in this act of Christ on the cross. But also... For the, that he might be just and justifier of the one who has faith in, well, it, to show his righteousness in this present time so that he can be just and justifier of the one who has faith. Jesus, there's only one way, a substitute, the innocent taking the place of the guilty. Here, here's my concern. We water down the gospel, and we've heard such a watered-down gospel that we think so much of Christianity is to help us be better people and help us be moral people. And really, the law and the Scripture all bring us to the point of the fact that apart from Christ, we can't be. There is no salvation in any other name than the Lord Jesus Christ. <laughs> Last week, I had a guy say, you're one of those religious nuts. And I said, Yes, I am. Sign me up. Can I tell you why? Why we all ought to be some of those religious nuts, some of those weirdos who do things differently and act differently? It's because of what Christ accomplished on the cross, and when we respond in repentance and faith, He changes us. He changes our relationship to sin and what we think about sin. He changes our relationship to God. Now we have one, a loving Father who loves us and cares for us. He changes how we view other people. Where they used to just be irritants or a means to the end, now they're people that Christ died for. He changes our perspective, changes our view, changes our world, and it makes us believe differently and behave differently and act differently because of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and the life-changing power of God as He brings us to life, regeneration. As I mentioned earlier, we cheat. We cheat. The biggest mistake we make is we say, I'm willing to go to church and I'm willing to go this far, but I'm only willing to go so far and no further. And like the rich young ruler who comes to Christ and says, sign me up. You're a great teacher and I want to be part of what you're doing. Jesus confronts us with the law that shows us the unwillingness of our own heart to to, to yield, to surrender, to give up. And many, like the rich young ruler, go away sorrowing because we're not willing to release what we're holding on to. 
The mistake that we make is a mistake of a hardened heart and a stiff neck and an unwillingness to yield and repent. And we get confused about repentance. We think repentance is just feeling bad. Repentance is not that. Repentance is regenerated in us by the Holy Spirit where he makes us see the sin that we used to embrace and hate it and see the Savior that we used to reject and embrace him. And it changes the direction of our life. It is surrender. It is yieldedness. And it is faith and we have replaced it with saying some words and making a decision and I have a problem with that I was <laughs> I've had this conversation so many times where people said hey I'm doing what the Bible says it says if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead you shall be saved for with the mouth confession is made into salvation hallelujah those statements are true we don't understand the depth of them in the day that that was written, there was a Caesar who said he was Lord. And if you bowed to any other Lord except for him, the penalty was death. Now imagine a phalanx of soldiers or a small group of soldiers coming up to you as you're walking down the street and saying, Say, Kaiser Curios, Caesar is Lord. Confess with your mouth that Caesar is Lord. And you stand there and you say, I can't. He's not. Christ is Lord. Christos Kurios. And the penalty for that confession was immediate physical death. It goes from being a decision, a belief, believing that Jesus is Lord, to the confession that I have given my life to him. And I am willing to give my life for him because of who he is and what he has done. Do you understand what I'm saying? We've cheated. We've not gone all the way. We, we've done just enough to satisfy a conscience without experiencing complete and total yieldedness and surrender. So, I need to end this sermon, don't I? This is so important. Listen. I pray that the Holy Spirit will convict you of sin. If you've never been convicted of sin, if you've never done like the old song says, it's me, Lord, standing in the need of prayer. It's me. If you've never come to that place, I pray that you'll open your eyes and recognize that your sins have separated between you and your God. The second thing that I pray that you will recognize is that it's not a religious life that saves you that it is a life yielded to the Lord Jesus Christ because of what he accomplished on the cross. And apart from salvation, you are destined to eternal judgment now and for eternity. And that you will put your faith not in what you can do, but in what Christ has done. You see, knowing all this is no benefit to you. This is Romans 4, by the way. There's no benefit to you if you don't come to him in repentance and faith, entrusting your life to him. Here's the call. It's the same thing that Jesus told Nicodemus. One thing you must know, you must be born again. How does that happen? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. 
God did not come into the world to condemn because the world is condemned already. And that's why we need a Savior. And the good news is we don't have to pay the penalty for our sin because Jesus paid it all. He satisfied the righteous requirements of the law. And then he paid for all of those times, all of those experiences where we broke the righteous requirements of the law. He paid the penalty for our sin. We're going to sing that song, Jesus Paid It All. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Now, if you're here and you're a believer, I want to encourage you with the same gospel that we've just been proclaiming. We need to continually rest on the truth of the gospel. We need to make sure that we have the same passion for the lives of others that Christ did as he, w- as he went to Golgotha. If you're here and you've never experienced this in your life, I would encourage you to, I'm praying that the Holy Spirit will open your eyes, that he will draw you, convict, and that he will grant you repentance. And we would love to talk to you personally about how you can know this. But just, it's more important that you talk to God. It's more important that you talk to him. Talk to him directly as we sing. Let's stand together. Mm-hmm.